Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's edition of the One Million by One Million podcast. I'm speaking with Rami El-Khatib of Acero Capital today. Rami, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So, Rami, let's start by introducing our audience to yourself as well as the fund. What is your focus? What kind of things do you like to do? What is the fund size? What kind of what size investments do you like to make? Sure. So, uh, Acero Capital, uh, we are uh, exclusively focused on early stage enterprise software. The fund is uh, 150 million dollars uh, uh, is the size of the fund. Somewhat of a unique model, um, I, I think, in a couple of ways. We are a small team, so I am the only general partner, but I have a, a small, fantastic team that supports me. And, uh, you know, typically single GP funds tend to be either seed stage funds or micro VCs. So we kind of have this unique combination, like I said, of a small team, single GP, but more kind of of a fuller, fuller size fund. And, um, you know, so it's uh, and, and that's been that's been kind of very helpful in pursuing our our strategy. Our strategy is um, uh, so, as I mentioned, to be to be an early stage investor in enterprise software. That's that's number one, and then number two, uh, we're we're extremely focused on um, funding companies with deep IP. Uh, mm-hmm. Our main focus when we're looking for investments is strong products, fantastic technology, and once we've seen opportunities that meet these criteria, really our goal is to make uh, deep concentrated bets basically in areas that we understand very well. Um, and uh, within, within that are our sort of most exciting investments and, 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 and or where we get the most excited is uh, when we see opportunities that actually require a lot of help and support and, and, and engagement from us as a firm. Uh, mm-hmm. So these are typically the kinds of opportunities that, that we're looking for. Rami, can you elaborate on how you define early stage? And especially when you're talking about deep tech, are we, are we looking at requirements that the entire product has been built and you have customer validation? Or are we talking about companies already in revenue? Where is the sweet spot of the fund? Yeah, and you know, good question in the sense that it, this probably illustrates, like I said, I mean, I do think we have a little bit of a unique model in terms of how we think about, you know, stage and check size. Maybe maybe the best way to illustrate that is by way of an example. I can uh, tell yeah. you about one of our investments that kind of illustrates that. So uh, about three and a half years ago, we made an investment in a, in a company uh, called Contract Security that is really mm-hmm. kind of at this point, revolutionizing the, um, the application security space. Um, that investment was a spin-out. Um, it was, uh, there was a consulting firm, basically, that uh, did consulting primarily with the NSA and a little bit with Wall Street banks, but their history was initially primarily with the NSA. Um, and as consultants, they helped the NSA uh, make sure that their software and software applications are secure. And as they were doing that work, they realized that um, there aren't really tools on the market, products on the market that help you uh, properly secure software. I mean, software security, if you're not using contrast security, is really still somewhat of a manual process. So they invented Mm -hmm. their own 
software and, and um, Acero came in and our Series A investment went in to spin out that software. Um, so see. you look at it, that investment that was um, uh, our initial check was $8 million, which is pretty sizable. Uh -huh. uh, it was a Series A, obviously the first capital uh, institutional or otherwise first capital that the company uh, uh, took. So from our perspective, this uh, this met the criteria. I mean, this you know the area of security and specifically application security is an area that we had been interested in. We found a fantastic technical team. We found the you know the deep IP and the fantastic product. But we really ended up. I mean, when we closed that Series A, uh, basically we had a full product and a full technical team. But but that's mm -hmm. all we had. Uh, you know, the company was pre-customer, pre-revenue even, you know, kind of other than the engineering side, essentially uh, uh, a pre-management team, and yet we invested $8 million in that company. So, okay. uh, I, I don't know, hopefully that illustrates kind of where we tend to be a little bit different. I mean, I think, you, you know, a typical Series A, as, as probably your, your question alludes, is typically looking for that initial revenue, looking for the initial customers, uh, and we've done that as well. But again, from our perspective, we try to take a different approach is there deep well, I'm very happy to hear the example that you just provided because uh, <laughs> among the various, you know, tools um, that we have pulled together in our, uh, you know, one million by one million methodology is a, an extensive and very creative set of tools for bootstrapping because, you know, if you have to make one million companies successful to some degree, you do need a lot of bootstrapping tools because they're not going to all get funded. And one of the things we do in that process is bootstrapping using services. And you just described the scenario where the product was developed by a consulting firm and they had visibility into a product opportunity, a problem domain, and, and they went and built the software. And then you came in, um, you know, to invest in a product that was already built, but with input from, you know, their consulting scenarios. This yeah, is absolutely. Absolutely. And this is, this is, I think, a great, uh, a great way to go about it from from the founders and entrepreneurs perspective and again from a from a venture investor perspective it's also a great way to make an, an investment but i do think again i mean in a situation where at least in this particular situation the product itself was complete but once we spun it out into a, its own company uh, i was basically addressing your question about stage and revenue and customers uh, you know we were willing to write an eight million dollars before before there were any customers uh, or revenue mm -hmm. because of all the factors that you mentioned it's a, yeah you know it's a team that had known the space for a long time right right yeah no and and that's very good because I, if we actually believe that bootstrapping using services is a tried and true method of building uh, especially fat startups where you have to invest quite a bit or a lot of time and and resources to come up with a product that is not it's not a lean startup often where several years of uh, product development time has to go in before a product can be sold. And in those scenarios, bootstrapping using service is a very, very good model. I, I completely agree. I completely agree. And But it's also a model that requires patience. I mean, this particular yes. you know, team that I mentioned, probably their entire journey – uh, that led to kind of, you know, the spin out of the product. And again, you know, fortunately now they're doing very, very well. But their journey was yeah. about probably on the order of 10, you know, 10 or so years. Uh, of Which going is often the process. case with these kinds of bootstrapping using services companies. They have bootstrapped for a long time and then, 
you know, eventually arrived at a product idea. No, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. This is, we've seen this case study, you know, this model of case study over and over and over again, and, and I think they actually make for very interesting companies. I in totally the long agree, run. and also I think it's an example of, um, you know, when, when the time is right, sort of as, as an entrepreneur, you will know, right? I mean, I think again, in my view, probably the best way to to go through some of these journeys is that, you know, these are not folks that started out from day one saying, uh, in fact, they're not even, you know, or they were not at the time based in Silicon Valley, right? They're sort of in the kind of D.C., Maryland area. Uh, so they didn't start out saying, hey, we're going to start a company. They started out based on their very deep expertise building this product. But then when the time was right uh, to connect with an investor and create a company, they obviously jumped on the opportunity. So that's another aspect of it is, you know, right. I love it when it kind of happens organically and, and it just one day it kind of hits you that, of course, absolutely, we should start a company, um, yeah. uh, you know, which is a little different from, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs maybe start from, from the other side first, right? Yeah. And what about geography? You are based in the Bay Area, right? Yeah, yeah. Our office is in Menlo Park. Um, our uh, investments, uh, at least in terms of when you look at the headquarter of, of, of the company, so, for example, the, the, the example I just gave you, contract that started out as an East Coast investment, but as we built the team, uh, that you know, the new CEO that we recruited is, is here in, in the Bay Area, and then, and then the CEO built kind of the management team around him in the Bay Area, so the headquarters is in the Bay Area. Uh, but, um, you know, another way we look, I mean, I gave you contrast by way uh, of an example of how we are typically trying to find deep IP, but like I said, where we can come in and add a lot of value to the start of the company. Another aspect of that is, is geography in the sense that, I mean, if I were to pick another example from our portfolio where we've done that, a company called Swerve in the mobile user engagement space, that company started its life as an Irish company. And when I met mm -hmm. the team, it was basically, uh, you know, domiciled in, in Ireland. Um, they had very, very deep and interesting um, real-time streaming analytics technology, but they were using it in a very narrow space. They were focused on user engagements within mobile games only. They were focused on the pretty much, you know, primarily the European market, and it was a company run by its um, uh, Irish technical founders. So we came in, our investment in that company, again, it wasn't just, uh, uh, you know, just the simple, you know, I think in that case it was a $6 million check that we wrote, but as part of our investment, we actually re-domicile the company uh, here in the mm -hmm. U.S., not mm -hmm. because we have to, you know, we don't have a requirement that our companies have to be in the U.S., but for this particular company, it really made sense because for them, it, it was all about taking that awesome technology but applying it in a much broader way. And much yeah. broader way meant not just the mobile gaming market. You go after the enterprise mobile apps and then from a geography perspective you base it in the valley and you go after after the market globally so you're comfortable with uh, teams everywhere anywhere in the world but you eventually create some sort of a bridge with silicon valley so that your companies can tap into the ecosystem of silicon valley's management teams and and infrastructure uh Absolutely. That's how it's worked out so far. I mean, again, it's not a hard and fast requirement. I mean, I can imagine a situation where I actually looked, we didn't make that investment, but we came close. We looked at a company um, in the UK 
once where it wasn't necessarily, you know, going to sort of move its headquarters to the Valley or, or that was something yet to be determined. So, you know, we're open-minded about it. It just, to your point, if we're looking to add a lot of value and if we're working with an international company, typically part of the value that we can add is help them tap into the U.S. market and the Silicon Valley ecosystem. Yeah, and, and we see, but, as you can imagine, because of our mission of this being a global virtual accelerator, we see an enormous number of international companies. And, uh, you know, our read basically is that it's it's great to be able to do a lot of the development and validation work in, in another place because of the cost structure of Silicon Valley. It's very difficult to bootstrap here. Um, but once that is done, um, in terms of market entry and, and uh, you know, building the full go-to-market team and strategy and so forth, the U.S. is still the best place to set up that operation, um, and Silicon Valley is definitely one of the considerations, partly also because, you know, most exits happen in the U.S., right? So if you have a, have a, have a structure where you are, you are in some Timbuktu place, the probability of a company wanting to exit, uh, want, wanting to acquire a company in Timbuktu is much lower. Yeah, that is that, that I, I I fully agree with that. At least certainly in terms of kind of the the propensity of of you know the the at least the percentage of of, of exits uh, that are uh, that happen in the U.S. or by U.S. companies. But when we do uh, these types of kind of you know uh, opportunities that start out globally. Uh, a lot of times we're really looking for the engineering team to to remain uh, where they started. Exactly, right? and, exactly. Yeah. I fully agree with that, yeah. Right. And, and, and the there are very, very good engineering teams abroad right now. Ab ab absolutely, I, I, I fully agree. And uh, and you can do sort of this interesting overlay then at that, at that point with, with Silicon Valley technical resources where you can also have technical leadership in the Valley, but it would be kind of more focused on you know, very specific challenges, but sort of the day-to-day -day development of the platform, yeah, remains yeah. remains basically where, where it started. So what trends um, do you see? Let's say uh, if you look back on the 2017 calendar year, um, what have you seen in your deal show that you can uh, synthesize as key trends? Well, I'll, I guess I'll answer this in, in, in two parts. The first part is, again, because we are very focused on enterprise software, yep. uh, we really look at trends that uh, essentially end up, you know, persisting for five to ten years and, and, and beyond. So since we began investing this, this fund um, a few years ago, really for us the combination of mobile cloud and data, the, the intersection of, and data meaning, you know, big data. The yeah. intersection of those three things basically colliding uh, has essentially completely reconfigured uh, the enterprise IT market and, and, and structure overall has been completely reconfigured. And that's something that, um, you know, has lasted at this point, you know, depending on when you want to start um, you know, counting, right? I mean, the, the iPhone came out in 2007, for example. So, you know, this is something that has persisted or, or the collision of these three trends has persisted for a long time and will continue to persist for a long time. So there is this kind of, you know, side of the, the trends where there's a lot of continuity 
really in, in the enterprise market. But obviously one day something else will come along and, and kind of reshape the landscape. So we're always, you know, trying to be on the lookout for that. And then within that, there are also the kind of more, you know, I, I guess you can call them local trends, you know, areas of interest that come and go. Some of them stick, some of them don't. So, um, for example, in, 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 you know, in 2017, at least from my own observation, uh, you know, we started to see a lot less focus on, on, on AR or at least AR, VR, or at least the pure plays yeah. within AR and v, uh, VR. But AI um, has started garnering uh, a lot huge. more focus, right? Yeah. AI yeah. is huge and, right now. And for us, AR and VR never really became um, and, and, and an important investment area for our fund uh, only because, you know, just kind of the, the deep widespread applications within enterprise, obviously they're there, but they didn't just kind of intersect with the areas in the enterprise right. that we're looking at. AI, on the other hand, is, is turning out to be a, a very, a very different story. Yeah, yeah. How do you process the current investment climate where capital is moving further and further upstream? How does a seed investor mitigate the Series A gap? There are like five hundred to seven hundred micro VCs in the industry right now, and um, hundreds of I mean, literally, you know, a hundred thousand probably seed deals a year. But the number of venture deals is still in the twelve hundred to fifteen hundred range. How do you process that trend? You know, to be honest with you, I mean, that is kind of one of the drivers of, of uh, our investment strategy, right? I mean, you know, part of how we, we, we tackle that trend, we believe, is it, it basically creates the need for um, uh, a venture firm uh, that has the, the ability or, or desire uh, to, you know, sort of to make sort of full Series A type investments. Um, again, it goes back to what I mentioned earlier on, on companies that have deep IP, even though the go-to-market yet hasn't been, hasn't been fully uh, demonstrated. Uh, so from our perspective, we look at it as an opportunity where sort of our model and our value add hopefully can, can be helpful, uh, you know, to some of, some of these companies that have not really reached sort of the, the series, the typical kind of series A uh, setup, uh, but, but we'd be willing to sort of take a, a series A bet on on companies like that if if we are if we have a lot of conviction about the space in the IP so you are okay with not having everything figured out and you're still willing to invest in companies based on hypothesis with the assumption that with the right funding and the team infusion into the deal you can scale absolutely i mean again it has to start with our conviction that the team has built the right technology i guess that's really the one area i mean we want we won't go in sort of pre-product, right? I mean, we right. need the product or at least the core of the product uh, to be something that can demonstrate to us that it really solves an important problem. Uh, but right. yeah, once, once, once we find that, exactly. I mean, in fact, not only are we willing to do it, it's actually our preference to be engaged in these kinds of investments because we get to add a lot of value early on, right? Whether it's yeah. re-domiciling the company. Well, it's a, it's a gap, team. right? Because a lot of the Series A investors right now are looking for real metrics. Like they want to see a million, two million in annual recurring revenue, which is not easy to get to. So yeah. so if you're willing to come in before that, when that all those pieces are not fully figured out, fleshed out, you actually have a competitive edge because there are lots of deals that haven't yet figured yeah. that out. I agree. I mean, in a way, I think of it as a gap that, that probably at least partially 
sort of explains why we as a, as a firm actually came about and, 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 and why we put this fund together. So, yeah, I agree. How do you process uh, unicorn mania? Are you chasing unicorns? <laughs> no, not really. I mean, you know, again, typically we're either the first institutional investor or – so our entry point into a company is either the Series A or Series B. And, and in a Series B scenario, we, we'd come in and, and lead a Series B, again, only if there's a situation where, let's say, a company, again, has awesome technology, but it's, but it's pivoting or, you know, uh, you know, changing its geography, like the swerve example that I gave you. Um, yeah. So by virtue of, of the timing of us entering um, uh, those companies, I mean, we're coming in at, at, you know, early stage valuation. So for us, you know, um, unicorn type valuations are something that don't really affect us in terms of, you know, our, our entry into an investment. Um, you know, if any of our companies grow to a point where somebody wants to come and invest at a unicorn valuation, we'll, we'll welcome that opportunity, but it's not what really... What would you do? I mean, so yeah. if you have a... Part of the problem that we see in the unicorn trend is that a lot of companies are getting artificially bloated up by later stage investors, and that creates huge problems for earlier investors with the preferences uh, yeah, no, I, and all that. I, I absolutely, completely, completely agree with that. And, and you know, obviously... I mean, I want to be I want to be respectful of of a lot of you know the unicorns that really you know have the the actual value that they got funded at. But I mean, you know, to be completely real about it, to your point, a lot of those companies have inflated valuations. I think it it, it creates problems from a an investor perspective. That's number one in terms of the earlier investors, and number two, it also creates problems sometimes when when you overfund. Uh, you really kind of lose the discipline, yeah. right? I mean, you get companies that, I mean, now because you have the money, you kind of have to use it, right? And because you have to use it, I mean, I've seen a lot of examples where management teams start to spend on areas that they don't actually understand very right. well. And, 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 it, and then, then the exit options become much more limited, right? You know, if you have yeah. so much money that you have to put return on investment on, then, you know, there are very few companies that will be able to acquire the company, so you have to go public no, or, or just... Absolutely. No, absolutely. And then, see, because we're, we're typically the early uh, investors in the company, we, we have a lot of control in terms of how the future rounds uh, are structured. And, and one thing that we really focus on within our portfolio companies is capital efficiency, right? I mean, good. you know, it feels good if people are chasing you with very big checks and high valuations, but we've, you know, we've actually turned down within our portfolio companies uh, checks that ended up being much larger uh, than than the company needs, specifically for this issue of, yeah. of distraction. And I think that's the right strategy for the time where we are in enterprise software. There are a lot of large companies out there that have, you know, large companies. There are mid-sized companies that have reached critical mass. There are tons of SaaS companies in the 50, 100, 200, 500 million range, and they're all looking to acquire. So if you have capital-efficient companies, you could find excellent exits to into these companies, and if you blow them up too much, those exit options go away. Yes, I, I completely agree. You know, um, uh, according to the, the last set of data I saw, something like 80% of M&A exits, 80%, happen at a valuation below $125 million. And yeah. um, uh, your point is exactly right. I mean, the typical venture firm, frankly, uh, loses money 
on or struggles to make uh, uh, an investment gain on, on that type of deal. But if you're an investor that funded a company in a very capital efficient way, maybe you came in early and there's an early exit and you're still the first investor. I mean, you know, you can, you can make five to Yeah, build a company for money. five to $10 million, sell it for $100 million. Everybody makes money and it's a great that's, outcome. And that's, that's a 10x. I, I, I fully agree with that. I mean, we, we, we've actually already had one exit and, and this, this is our first fund that we're investing in. We've already had one exit, which, which basically followed that, that playbook to, you know, to, to the T. And it was an extremely uh, good outcome for us. Very good. Well, wonderful conversation. Rami, if you would please stay on the line. I want to say goodbye to our audience, but then I want to chat with you a bit about something that I want to send you to look at. Sure. Um, audience, thank you for being with us today. Um, as you know, we have weekly working sessions. Every week we have the free public roundtables where you can come, you can bring your project, and we'll work together to figure out what strategic issues that you need input on and guidance on. Um, so go to the website, 1mby1m.com, and sign up at the free public roundtable page. If you're in the Bay Area, you can come meet me in person at one of the uh, 1 million by 1 million rendezvous at Cafe Boroni in Menlo Park. Uh, we meet pretty regularly, almost every week there. So that's also another place where we could work on your business and strategize. In any case, keep listening, and we'll be back with another edition of the 1M by 1M podcast. Thank you for coming.